0: Howard, shoring it up. Uh, thank you, Shung. Thank you for that. Uh, these are musical motifs. What is it is is a very short musical phrase. It's part of a larger composition. often begins the composition. Uh, it's a famous bit. And it repeats itself. It comes back. You, you sometimes it repeats itself in full, as in uh, the whole little phrase, complete. And sometimes you just hear a little bit of it, like just a few notes. It reminds you of it, but isn't the full thing. If we're to think of the, the story of the Bible like an incredible, vast symphony, then Exodus is one of the major motifs in that symphony. In Exodus, it's the second book of the Bible, but it's also a story that uh, it kind of casts this melody that we then pick up throughout the biblical story over and over again. Sometimes it, it's repeated almost note for note, especially in the psalm. Sometimes the whole story is repeated very obviously and out there. Sometimes it comes as just a hint, just an echo, just something that kind of twigs your memory, reminds you of the story of Exodus. And of course it builds, the the, the symphony builds and builds and builds until we get to the story of Jesus. And that is where the Exodus story, uh, the, the motif comes back in full with the whole orchestra this uh, incredible crescendo of music and brings with it new and remarkable harmonies. So that means that learning the distinct melodies of Exodus allows us to experience the richness of the biblical story in a way which we wouldn't be able to if we didn't. And it allows us to weave its melody into our own lives. Before we begin with chapter 1, and Pete's going to come and read for us in a second, uh, let's just remind ourselves of where we're up to in the, in the story, in the composition. Okay, uh, We looked at Genesis last year, the calling of Abraham. God uh, chose him out of obscurity, gave him a covenant, a promise to bless him and his descendants after him. So we had Abraham, and then he had his son Isaac. He had his son Jacob. And he had a son, Joseph. And towards the end of Genesis, we have Joseph coming into Egypt and ascending to this place of power and privilege, the second in command of the entire nation. And Joseph is able to be used by God to save Israel from famine, the nation, his family, and brings them into Egypt, about 70 people all up. Then Genesis ends, and just over the page is Exodus, And in that gap there is 400 years of Abraham's family, his descendants, living in Egypt. That's very important because we'll come back to that. The context is God's covenant. And the question we're asking is, will God continue to be faithful to his covenant? We have descendants, that part of the promise fulfilled, yes, descendants, yes. But we don't have a nation yet because they're not governed. They don't have a law yet, and they don't have a land. They are yet to come to their own land. So the first half of Exodus is a story of how is this, how are we going to see God bring about uh, to fulfill his promises to Israel, and how will he safeguard their very existence against almost certainly their greatest threat? Okay, that's the context so far. Now, Pete's going to come up and he's going to read to us from chapter 1 and 2 um, and also from the New Testament, and
1: then we'll keep going. These are the names of the sons of Israel <coughs> me, who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor and they built Pithon and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shiphrah and and Pa, when you are helping the Hebrew women during sh- um, childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let them let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let, them, they let the boys live. And the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levi uh, woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him coated it with tar and pitch, and she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slaves to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him from out of the water. Reading just two verses from the first um, letter of, to the Corinthians, um, chapter 1, verses 25 and 26. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's
0: pray before we look at this passage. Gracious God, uh, the Exodus story... uh, shines like a beacon into a world that longs for deliverance. Help us now as we look at these first, this first section of the story and help us to see how we fit into this story, how you are God who uses weak and powerless people to bring down the strong and to stand up against wickedness and evil and sin. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Exodus uh, begins with the fruit of Joseph's legacy. Verse uh, Chapter 1, verse 7 says, The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was full with them. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> it should be familiar, if you know the story well, because it's, Very, very close, even almost word for word, the God's mandate for humanity back in Genesis chapter 1. Do you remember? God said to this new world he'd created, to the humans he'd placed in it, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. This repetition is deliberate. It's meant to bring these two stories together. Even though sin has brought brokenness and death, God hasn't given up on his original plan. He's working it out through his new chosen people. He's bringing his his good purposes back to creation. But sin also is spreading through the world unchecked. 400 years after Joseph, there is a shift in Egyptian politics. Uh, The old ruling family is kicked out and a new ruling dynasty is Uh, comes to power. And so there's a new pharaoh in town. And this new pharaoh hasn't heard of Joseph, or perhaps he just doesn't care about Joseph. Certainly doesn't care about his people or his legacy, the legacy that he left them. So this new pharaoh looks at Israel. He doesn't see a conduit of God's blessing. He doesn't see God's purposes being worked out and something good and something to, to get involved in. But instead he sees a threat that needs To be dealt with. And with that, a murderous enemy begins to rise. A seed of fear takes root deep in Pharaoh's heart, a seed that sprouts and grows into nothing less than full blown hatred. Have a look at verse 9. It says Look, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, We must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous and, if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. This is probably a summary of an official policy speech to the royal court, but we see it for what it really is, a propaganda campaign of fear. What a stark contrast it is between this uh, Pharaoh's decree and God's hopes for humanity because God created humanity to be, to be one, to be unified. And, and God gave humanity great power, but it was meant to be exercised for the good of others, to bring a world of harmony and fruitfulness. The humans reject God and they begin to worship themselves as they do. Power is twisted. Its use is twisted from selfless acts to selfishness the desire for gain, to heap up security and wealth for yourself. And Pharaoh has great power. In fact, he is the most powerful man in the world. And so his abuse of this power, of course, leads to great suffering for those he deems a threat. So he decides that the only way to deal with this Israel problem is to manage it. He says, make them small enough and manageable enough so that they can't start a rebellion. They, can't get, uh, they don't have the opportunity or the strength or the energy to be able to join in with his enemies against him. And so his plan begins in the form of racial slavery. He enslaves the whole nation. He makes them into his personal construction force. Twice a text tells us that he worked them ruthlessly. Right? They're not getting paid fair wages. These are, this is slavery in its worst form. The slavery of an entire nation. And, and, and they build two entire cities for him. But the plan backfires. The more they worked, the more he was ruthless, the more Israel multiplied. And as they multiplied, Pharaoh's fear grew and grew and grew. And so he begins to consider a more final solution genocide. Now first, as often happens, he tries to do it subtly. (laughs) He tries to do it behind closed doors. He tries to do it in a way which no one would really notice. So he corners two of the Israelite midwives. These are probably administrators over um, a larger group of midwives. And he tries to intimidate them into carrying out his murderous intentions on Israelite newborn boys. Now, we'll come back to the midwives in a second, but suffers to say that the plan backfires again, and he is stimmied. He can't manage to get his plan into action. And so what he tries to do behind closed doors, he now makes official governmental policy. He puts out a command that all Egyptians, okay, not just the army, not just the police or whatever, but all Egyptians become duty-bound to seek out Hebrew newborn baby boys and horribly throw them into the Nile. Subtlety and subterfuge, it's out the window. (laughs) What happens here is the destructive power of sin taking over a person's heart to the extent that his selfishness, his arrogance and his fear lead him to commit and perpetrate acts of untold wickedness. If the Exodus motif, its melody, is this beautiful and harmonious tune, then we see here that playing alongside it is the discordant and harsh dirge of sin. And Pharaoh, of course, would not be the last person to act out of fear for their own security and pride in their own privilege, he would not be the last person to look at God's images, his humanity, his people, and treat them as objects, playthings that can be disposed of at will. In fact, if we look over the history, thousands of years of progress, technological progress, has done nothing to stem this tide Pharaoh was only one man thousands of years ago, but ever since we have seen uh a this kind of thing happen, haven't we? You could name a dozen moments in history when almost exactly the same thing happens when a powerful person becomes fearful of a minority and seeks to extinguish them and In fact, if we look across our world today, I think we see this this dirge, this discordant melody being played over and over again. Not exactly the same way, but definitely the same type. Fear and panic, people get caught up in it. And ironically, even though technology has brought us so much closer together across the world, it also becomes a conduit for people to razz each other up, to be fearful of people. It works to spread division as much as it brings us together. And so we get caught up in this narrative where the villains of the peace are outsiders, foreigners, immigrants, strangers, people who are not like us. And of course, like in, in like an Exodus, this sometimes happens. Uh, covertly behind closed doors. It's an attitude that runs underneath uh, even, even nice words like equality and tolerance, but this, this, uh, this undercurrent of division and looking down at others and scorning them is still there. But it often happens as well in, in, uh, out in the open where people exclude others and label them, where people treat them as threats, And that comes out in policy, comes out in influence through influential people and they gain followers for themselves. So this tune is alive and well even in our modern world and I wonder if it isn't a tune that perhaps we all here have hummed along to at some stage. But no matter what the scope of it, it's nothing less than an attack on God's good design where love and generosity for the other is extinguished and it's replaced with suspicion, exclusion, and division. And in its worst case scenario, it leads to murder and genocide. It's interesting to me that the symbol of divinity and royal power for the pharaohs was the rearing cobra, (laughs) In fact, keep this in mind, Uh, Pharaoh had a a staff, and on it was the the head of a snake. And they believed that uh, they worshipped the sun god, that the sun god would enable fire to shoot out from this snake and destroy Pharaoh's enemies. Quite literally, Pharaoh broadcasts himself as the serpent king. (laughs) And this should remind us, I think, of who the real villain of this story is, not actually ultimately Pharaoh, The real villain of humanity since the very beginning has been the snake who whispered division and discord into the ears of Eve. The one who always works to divide and destroy, to spread lies and hate. And now again here, his representative is claiming divine power for himself and attacking God's people. And the question then is, will they survive the attack? Can they do anything against this kind of monstrous power? Will God act to deliver them? And if so, how will he do it? And we might ask the question: how is he doing it now? How will he do it in our world? Bring the end an end to the selfishness of abuse of power. Well, he's going to act. in fact, he's going to send some heroes to stand up against the serpent king. But these won't be the heroes that we expect. In fact, they'll be incredibly unlikely. Now, Exodus as a whole is famous for its spectacle, right? If you've seen Charlton Heston's The Ten Commandments or The Prince of Egypt more recently, it's what what do the the Hollywood filmmakers major on the spectacle? The big miracles, the plagues, the, the crossing of the Red Sea, that plays really well in camera. But that's not how Exodus starts. It doesn't start with flashy shows of divine power, No, we have to wait for those scenes. Instead, what happens is that we're introduced to a number of unsung heroes. They're not flashy. In fact, they're not that powerful, but they are heroes nonetheless. And they stand up to and defy the most powerful man in the world. And the very first to do it are two midwives. It's really interesting. In in Exodus chapters 1 and 2, we're not told the name of Pharaoh, They would have known the name, but we're not told his name. But history will always remember the names of these two Israelite midwives. Their names are Shifra and Puah. They should be names you remember. In fact, Megan, two good options there. Now, as I said before, Pharaoh seems to think that they would be easily brought into his murderous schemes. Surely a bit of of pressure, a few threats, maybe even some bribes, and these midwives are going to crumble beneath his fist. But that doesn't happen. Instead, actually, they blatantly disobey him. And they did it surely knowing that their lives may well be forfeit for it. They knew that there was a higher moral authority to fear and obey than Pharaoh. And this is incredible. Verse 17 simply says that they feared God. They feared God. In other words, they looked to a higher moral authority than Pharaoh. They were willing to obey and fear a one who was higher even than Pharaoh. And so they risk it all in an act of audacious rebellion. They knew that the implications of disobeying God were far greater than the implications of disobeying Pharaoh, even if it meant their own deaths. So when Pharaoh comes for an explanation, why isn't this working? What's the deal? There's lots of babies around. They have an answer. Israelite women are different than Egyptian women. When it comes to labor, they just get the job done really quickly. What can we do? Now, we read that and go, sounds like a bold-faced lie. And maybe it was. Though I wonder if maybe Israelite women suddenly got a little memo through their letterbox that said, whatever you do, don't call the midwife. But either way, the story doesn't make an ethical judgment on, on how they went about it. All we're told is that They were flawed people who stepped into the role of unlikely heroes. They feared God, and they obeyed him. They risked their lives, and they saved thousands. And they themselves are blessed by God. They themselves are fruitful, and they multiply. Their families grow, a sign of God's blessing. So they're the first of our unlikely heroes. The next one is another woman, seeing a theme here, a woman from the tribe of Levi. And we later later learned that her, her name is Jochebed. And she's pregnant during the time that Pharaoh enacts this policy of infanticide, which must have been awful. Imagine being pregnant, waiting, not with anticipation and joy for the arrival of your child, but fear of what's going to happen. Her stomach, we imagine, is twisting into knots, especially when the day comes and she gives birth and she looks down and it's a boy. But as she does, she looks down at her babe and her heart is filled with love and longing. And she has to do everything in her power to keep her boy safe. And so she hides him away, probably in her own home for a couple of months. It's Infants very small, you can do that. But pretty soon and I know I've got a four-month-old, it becomes pretty hard to hide. (laughs) And so she decides to hide him away in a place that surely no one would look for him, the very place of execution. Literally, she would throw him in the Nile, (laughs) but not without a floaty. (laughs) She makes a basket, doesn't she, out of papyrus. She coats it in bitumen. And she places the child, the baby son, inside, and it floats among the reeds. But check this out. Actually, the word here is in basket. No, there's it's a Hebrew word here that uh, is only ever used one other time in Scripture. Jochebed laid her baby boy in an ark. The monuments of Egypt may be among the wonders of the world, but God's story here is a far greater wonder. A tiny, unimpressive little paper mache boat called an ark. And just like the ark of Noah, and yes, we're meant to make the comparison, it will be the vehicle through which God will rescue his people from watery destruction, make a fool out of the evil powers of the world, and create a new nation out of nothing. Now to our last unlikely heroes, two more women to join the ranks. Pharaoh's daughter is down, bathing in the river among the reeds, and she spies this little hidden ark. Who would have thought that would happen? (laughs) And she finds its precious cargo, and she opens it up, and we hold our breath, and we ask ourselves, will she obey her father's command? She certainly knows about it. But no, her motherly instinct kicks in, and her heart goes out to this tiny Hebrew boy. And just like his birth mother, mother, she immediately decides she must protect him. And surely she, as much as anyone else, risked her life to do it. She is powerful, but her father, Pharaoh, is more powerful, and even his own family should not trifle with him. She doesn't know the God of Israel. she's an Egyptian. But in this moment, she becomes God's instrument of rescue. And she draws out baby Moses from the water. And that's what Moses means. She names him Moses, which means to draw out in Hebrew. But sounds a lot like the Egyptian word for son. And that's what she takes him as, her son. And so in a moment, Moses goes from death row to royalty. But there's one more heroic hero. One more woman. Moses has a sister, Miriam, and she's watching from afar, hiding and concerned about what would happen to her little baby brother. And then she is suddenly filled with wisdom beyond her years as she sees this scenario play out in front of her. Bounding out, she organizes for Moses to be taken care of by his own mother. (laughs) Not only that, but she will get paid for the privilege. You see God's blessing being worked out here. It's an incredible reversal. Moses goes from fugitive, facing a likely death, and instead is now protected, safe, and loved. He'll be raised amongst his own people, and then later in a palace. So here are our unlikely heroes, remember at least four of their names Shifra and Puah, Jochebed and Miriam, and this unknown princess. It's interesting, in the Garden of Eden, we see the serpent manipulating the woman, don't we? Manipulating Eve into losing her fear of God. And yet here in Exodus, it's reversed. God invites these women. Not to be manipulated by the servant, but instead to face him, to stand firm, to risk their lives and outmaneuver the most powerful man in the world. And so his wicked schemes are frustrated. And it's out of their boldness that God draws out of obscurity another hero, Moses. The man who will eventually himself draw God's people out of Israel sorry, uh, God's people out of Egypt as a new nation of Israel. He would draw them out of the watery depths of the Red Sea, or actually, probably more literally, the Sea of Reeds. God would again use Moses to make his son, Israel, a royal kingdom. Out of obscurity, out of public enemy number one, to royalty. But the fireworks are yet to come. God will bring his mighty strength to bear against pharaohs in a showdown that will define the ages. But before that, Exodus' symphony begins with this simple melody, and it's a motif that will come back again and again, that the serpent will not remain unopposed in God's story. He will not be free to run free and uh, and attack God's people and bring division and strife to humanity. No, instead... The dirge of fear, pride, and selfishness will begin to be overpowered by a new melody, a motif that will come again and again. Thousands of years later, before Jesus was born, God, even now, is laying the foundations for a new kingdom to oppose the kingdom of the world, a kingdom that turns the values of the world upside down, a kingdom to bring salvation to a sinful world an upside-down kingdom. If you think about things purely in terms of physical well-being, in some ways, our world has never been better. There's a book out at the moment which is arguing that even though we think that the world's getting worse, actually it's getting better. More people are living a good life, a prosperous life, than ever before in human history. And yet, alongside it is this feeling of unsettledness across the world that even though we're living better and better lives some things just don't add up we feel powerless against the injustices we see in the world the the horrors that our news feeds present us with every day and we feel overwhelmed by them and we turn our minds off and we distance ourselves from it thinking what can I do what can what can we do We're unsettled because we can't help notice, I think, that we are often complicit, whether we know it or not. How we sometimes allow fear and pride and selfishness to lead our hearts in certain directions and to make certain decisions. When we give in to the whispers of the serpent that says, look after yourself, stockpile your power, shore up your security and do it even if you have to be a bit ruthless. There's this snake-like power out there. But there's also a snake-like power in here. And so we ask ourselves, is God doing anything about it? All very well and good that he acted like that in in Exodus. But what's he doing now? Because it seems like the might of Pharaoh is still on the loose. Actually, the Hebrews wondered the same thing because Moses grew up he makes a bad decision, and as a result, he flees the country for decades between Exodus 2 and 3, decades past. And at the end of chapter 2, we see that Israel cried out. Uh, verse 23 says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And the cry, went for, the cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned for them. Out of their desperation, the Israelites cry out for help, and God responds. It says he remembers his covenant. That doesn't mean that he'd forgotten about it. It's a word that means now was the time when he decided that he would act to honor it. To honor his promises. The actions of the unlikely heroes, as it turns out, would set into motion a chain of events that would see Israel leaving Egypt free. The story is to come in the next few weeks, but that cry is not just the cry of Israel at that time, it's the cry of humanity who long for God to intervene, for God to act, to do something about suffering and injustice. We look for him to just snap his fingers and make it all better. And actually we get angry at him when he doesn't. And yet God has acted and he continues to act. But just as like an exodus, he continues to do it in ways which are surprising and unlikely. Ways that flummox human wisdom. That don't make sense to human ways of thinking. The exodus melody continues to rise and crescendo through the Old Testament and into the New where another hero would rise up, we would say the most unlikely of them all. See, as I said before, the life of Jesus is exodus brought to its great completion. He is the answer of the cries of God's people throughout the ages, both back then and now today. Because he is the one who's even bolder than the midwives. He's the one who's even more loving than Moses' mother. He's the one who's more compassionate than Pharaoh's daughter, And he's the one who's wiser even than Miriam. And he's the true and greater Moses. Like Moses, Jesus was born at a time when Israel was oppressed. Like Moses, he was saved from the slaughter of innocent babies at the hands of a ruthless king. And like Moses, he came out of waters, the waters of baptism, and was declared a royal son. By God Himself, and the sinful powers of his day brazenly sought his life, and eventually they succeeded—not driving him out of the country, but driving him out of the city to a Golgotha and a cross. Jesus is the one who came to fulfil all that Moses and his life was like. He's the one who came to deliver all who follow Him, not just from Israel, but from every nation. On earth. He is the one who has crushed the serpent under his heel, stripping the devil of his power, revealing him for the snake he really is. Jesus, the unexpected Messiah, the unlikely king, the royal prince of peace. Jesus ushers in a new kingdom that is in direct opposition to the kingdoms of the world, where the last are first, where the weak are strong where the foolish are wise, where the rejected and marginalized are included and given a place of honor. Jesus calls to himself a new people to live as members of his new kingdom, following in the footsteps of the midwives, the princess, the mother, and the sister. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you are wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Family, it's through God's incredible compassion and mercy that he raises us up, us, his church, Those scorned by the world, seemingly so weak, to stand up against the serpent's schemes and see them for what they are and see them dismantled, to see the curse reversed, to see sin's work undone through our great hero, Jesus. Jesus calls for himself people who fear God and reject evil who battle against fear and pride and strive for love and peace, who work in the background, often unknown, not famous, unheard of, unthanked, and yet known by God and accepted by him. So our path as Christians is not the path of power, but that of weakness and foolishness in the sight of the world following in the footsteps of Shifra and Puah, Jochebed, Miriam, a princess, Moses, and much more wonderfully in the footsteps of our savior Jesus. And it's in his spirit living in us that grants us the boldness to stand for what is right, the wisdom to reject fear and pride, a love for the lost, compassion for the poor, because God has not forgotten his promises. No, he is working it out in power and strength. And one day it will fill the whole world. Let's be part of that kingdom. Let's pray. Gracious God, you call us to follow an unlikely savior with a foolish gospel and a scornful cross <laughs> And yet through it, you promise to change the world and ultimately to bring about its great restoration, a return to paradise. Father, we forget so easily, we long for power and influence, and we fall into a pattern of fear and pride. Forgive us, strengthen us, and help us, Father, to live the life of an unlikely hero, knowing that our The great hero of our story is none but Jesus, who stands for us. He who was the strongest of all, who took on weakness, so that through his weakness, we might become strong. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.